Good morning, Cornerstone. It's good to be with you again. I so enjoy being a part of this congregation. And I pray that what we hear this morning will not be my words, but his words, because they are so powerful. During the past few months, our pastors have been challenging us to respond to the most concentrated teaching by our Lord Jesus that was ever recorded in John chapters 13 through 17. And we have almost completed that series at this point. Even though this teaching is about 2,000 years old, it has proven to be quite critical for the way that we live and serve God now, hasn't it? Today I would like to pick up on a few themes that have been introduced during these weeks and see how they are developed in the passage that Stephanie just read. As we have both read these words during the past week and now we have heard them, there are a couple of overarching thoughts that I'd like you to keep in the back of your mind as we go over this passage today. First, I would like you to notice that these words of Jesus to his father very much have the feel of being a progress report. Did you notice that? He's talking to his father about what he has accomplished and about the next steps that need to be taken. So if any of you have worked in a situation where you've had a project and you had to provide an update from time to time, this is essentially what Jesus is doing for his father. Now the neat thing about this is the only reason that we can even read these words is because Jesus chose to pray aloud. He had said in verse 13, these things I speak in the world. Remember what Jesus had said earlier that night, that the disciples were now his friends. And he said, all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So Jesus' report of what he has accomplished and his requests to his father reveal more of his father's plan for them. In addition, Jesus continued. He says that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. If you and I are in the market for more joy, and who isn't, then pay attention to what Jesus prays here because it's, it's the object of our meditation so that we may have more joy. Now here's another thought that you really need to notice. Most of Jesus' prayer here is related in one way or another to the concept of the world and the relationship that he and his disciples have to the world. The word world occurs 13 times in these 14 verses. That ought to tell us something. It is the most concentrated use of this word in the entire Bible. We usually think of the word world in English geographically, like the earth. Or sometimes we may think of it quantitatively, as in all members of the human race. For example, John tells us in his gospel that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him. God the Son, the Word, is the one by whom everything was made and it was all very good initially. And later, 
the word entered into his own creation as the God-man, Jesus. Yet John goes on in that same verse to use the word world another way, ethically. He says this, yet the world did not know him. And he says in chapter 3, the light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. The world that Jesus had created had radically changed and not for good. This describes the state of all humanity as corrupted by our original and our ongoing rebellion against our creator. And sometimes it's only a group within the corrupted race that's being spoken of. We were reminded of this a number of weeks ago. Jesus' religious opponents were sometimes spoken of as the world. You might recall that Spencer had a very memorable illustration. He had a trash bag and it was filled with balloons. And all those balloons picture the mixed bag of groups of people and their ideas that make up the world. But I'd like to add one further thought to that illustration that he used so effectively. The world started out very good, but because of the corruption that we have introduced to it, it has essentially been trashed. Listen carefully today for the various expressions Jesus used to describe this realm called the world so you can understand how we are to relate to it. For our relationship to the world as disciples of Jesus is complicated and produces an awkward, ongoing tension. And I think I can easily illustrate this. Now, some of you are much younger than I am, so you haven't been around in the church since the 70s. But a couple of hymn titles should tell you a lot about this. One is an old hymn that's called, This Is My Father's World. And if you remember that, you know that the words are very precious. But then there's another song that I was introduced to in the 70s, and it's called, This World Is Not My Home. I'm Just a Passing Through. And so you can see that this idea of the world is complicated. It's not one simple idea. It started out very good, but because of our corrupting influence, the world has been trashed. Therefore, there is a very great need for this prayer by Jesus on the disciples' behalf, because the world is a complicated thing, and we have to deal with it. Now, keeping the opposition of the hostile, unbelieving world as the backdrop, let's see how Jesus accomplished the work his father gave him to do in the disciples. This occurs in three stages. Their past preparation, their present protection, and their future provision. We are told in verses 6 through 9 about the disciples' past preparation for their work. In verses 6 and 9, the most fundamental way the disciples were prepared was by being given to Jesus by his Father, out of the world. Did you notice that? If they were not first rid of the world's grip on them, they would be of no use to God's plan. 
So as part of his grand plan to save the world, he sovereignly overcame the resistance of some who were part of this hostile believing world, effectively removing them, not from the world, but from domination by the world. He gave them to his son as a love gift. He drew them to faith in Jesus by the Spirit to become Jesus' disciples. Note that they were not taken out of the world in a physical sense. They became out of sync with the world's ideals and priorities. They were so absorbed in learning and living divine truth in Jesus' presence that it might be compared to a spiritual boot camp. Now, I don't have any experience with boot camp. I cannot tell you that I know what that's like. But my son Daniel, when he was in high school, volunteered to go to a boot camp that was sponsored by Civil Air Patrol. And it's quite an experience. The first two days that he was there, when he was able finally to communicate with us, he said, I'm miserable. This is terrible. It's like, why would anybody choose to do that, right? But he said, I'm tempted to just have you take me home, but I'm not going to have you do that. I'm going to try to hang in there, try to hold out and see what happens. By the time he came to the end of that week of basic training, he was elated. It had been so good for him to go through that rigorous training, that breaking down of old ways of thinking, replacing it with new ways of thinking. And he came out of it a better person. Well, we don't experience boot camp like Jesus' disciples did. They walked with him and lived with him for three and a half years, right? But I think it's worth asking the question, are we sufficiently transformed by the Spirit and His truth that we also can be described truly as given to Him out of the world like the disciples were? With our old ways of thinking broken down and replaced by new ways of thinking? The other element of Jesus' uh, preparation of the disciples was that he manifested the name of God to them. Now, this language sounds odd to us. As a matter of fact, I heard somebody ask the question, what do you mean? Was he talking about the name Yahweh? Well, no. In Jewish thought, a person's name represented the totality of their character, everything that they are. For example, in the book of Exodus, when the Lord proclaimed his name to Moses, he did so by proclaiming his divine attributes. He talked about his grace, his justice, his patience. You can read all about it in Exodus 34 if you're interested. But it, it wasn't just pronouncing a few syllables. It was God expressing who he was to Moses. And Jesus did the same thing for his disciples. He expressed the character, the attributes, the priorities of God and lived them out in the presence of his disciples. Remember that he said to them, 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. In verses 6 through 8, we can see that they are now convinced that he and his message were from God, and they had received and kept his word. This was the content of Jesus' boot camp training, and his preparation of the disciples succeeded. What would have happened if the original disciples had not been convinced that Jesus came from God and that his words were therefore true? Well, we can actually read it in John chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to remind you of it. That in John chapter 6, many of his so-called disciples, when his words challenged them too personally, you know what they did? They left him. They walked away. And they proved by doing so that they were not among those that were given by the Father out of the world. One of the most searching questions that we can ask of ourselves is whether we are only fair-weather followers. Or are we fully convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and therefore we cling to him as alone having the words of eternal life? like the other disciples did in John chapter 6. And do we think and act out of sync with the world around us? Because that's a good way to tell whether or not you're a disciple, right? Are you out of sync with the world or are you in sync with what the world is trying to tell us and what the world is trying to get us to do? In verses 9 through 15, we can see the disciples' present protection for their work. According to verses 9 through 11, for whom did Jesus pray? This is a very interesting thing. He prayed for those the Father gave him and not for the hostile, unbelieving world. Did you notice that? After all, the disciples belong to the Father and the Son and they are the ones who have glorified Jesus. They have put his greatness and his character on display to the world. But this doesn't mean that he is unconcerned about the world. Just because he said, I'm not praying for them right now, that doesn't mean Jesus is unconcerned about the world. John's gospel asserts that he loves the world and his plan is to save the world, as we shall see. But his prayer is even more critical because Jesus is leaving the physical world to return to his Father. But the disciples are remaining in the world. So in verses 11 through 15, what does Jesus specifically pray for his disciples? Because up until verse 11, he hasn't actually requested anything. He's been talking with his father. He's been giving his report. But now we're going to see what it is that he wants to see happen in the future. So he prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Just as they were given by the Father to Jesus and he manifested his name to them, now he prays, watch over them so that they remain 
separated and faithful to the character and the priorities of God that Jesus had revealed to them by his life and his teaching. Even as Jesus had himself watched over them while he was in the world and he guarded them during their spiritual boot camp so that none of them were lost. And then he states the goal of being kept in his name. He says that they may be one even as we are one. It is to be like the unity of the Father and the Son in the Trinity. That's constant and unbreakable. Remember what Chris said last week? And I quote, God is glorified when we and all other believers are perfectly one, dancing together with the Trinity in love and unity. That should sound familiar based on what Chris taught us last week. Jesus continues to pray, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out even though the world has hated both Jesus and his disciples because they are not of the world. In their thinking and in their actions, they represent a foreign country with holy ideals. Their citizenship is in heaven. Let's stop and think about the implications of Jesus leaving but the disciples staying in the world. Jesus is already facing great hostility by the world, and within hours, he is on the verge of being put to death. Yet Jesus will return to his father after his resurrection and leave the disciples to face the ire of the hostile world. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is returning to the Father and he's leaving the disciples to face the hostility of the world that they're in. Now this is not the entire picture. But if it were, could you imagine the disciples' reaction? Or ours? Honestly, we would be so tempted to act selfishly and say something like, beam me up, Jesus. Or, Oh, Lord, come and get me out of here. This is escapism. And the disturbing reality of our current culture is that many Christians are looking for a way out. Whether that means moving to another state or abandoning our mission to the world and fixing all our attention on the Lord's return or fixing our attention on the return to normal after the pandemic, as if the ultimate goal is not his kingdom, but our comfort. Or even like these disciples. Do you remember what they said to him in the beginning of the book of Acts? Jesus, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples, even after his resurrection, were still looking for the establishment of a national kingdom 
to rid them of overbearing governmental overreach. Sound familiar? This is why Jesus had already assured the disciples that he would not leave them as orphans. You see why that's so important? They're facing a hostile world. Jesus is going to be gone. He said, I won't leave you as orphans, but that he would come and be in them permanently by another helper, the Holy Spirit. This is also why he is praying for them now. They need it. So Jesus continues, but that you keep them from the, from the evil one. Since they will remain, they will face not only human hostility and rejection, but intense spiritual opposition as well from the ruler of this world. They had already lost Judas to Satan's schemes, though at this point no one except Jesus realized it. And even though Jesus had told them that the ruler of this world is judged, He's not gone yet. According to 1 Peter 5, 8, he is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Yet, in spite of that, we are able to resist him. James tells us he will even flee from us, due in no small part to this prayer by our intercessor to protect us from Satan. Don't forget that. Think about the turmoil the disciples were about to face when Jesus was arrested. And about the very shameful but very human fear and desertion that followed. If Jesus had not prayed for their protection, what hope could they have of being restored? His prayer did not prevent them from denying and deserting him. That happened. And he reminded them in advance that it was going to happen. But it kept them from permanent failure. And ultimately, it guaranteed their restoration. Don't miss this. Think about what Jesus talked about with the disciples in Luke chapter 22 after the Lord's Supper. It's the same night, remember? Even though we're in John... We're talking about the same night as the Lord's Supper. And Peter is saying, oh, Lord, we're with you to the end. You know, we would never deny you. Jesus looks right at Peter and says, Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you all like wheat. He says, but... I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And once you have been restored, strengthen your brothers. That's the power of Jesus' prayer. Think about it. Peter denied the Lord three times. All the disciples fled. That looks like the end of what started out to be a very good thing. But Jesus says, ah, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He's going to get the opportunity. But I have prayed for you that your faith 
may not fail. That is our hope, brothers and sisters. It isn't the strength of our faith. It isn't the strength of our resolve. It isn't the strength of us saying, I will follow Jesus. Peter did that. It is based upon the strength of Jesus' prayer that our faith will not fail. So we also should take great comfort in the prayers of the Son of God who is able to keep us from stumbling, says Jude, and to save to the uttermost as our intercession, as Hebrews says, even when or especially when we're feeling the sting of having fallen into temptation, sin, and unfaithfulness. We do fail him, but thankfully he prays for us that our faith may not fail. Now in verses 16 through 19, we see the disciples' future provision for their work. He continues to pray, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God made the disciples and us to be not of this world, just as Jesus is. But we are not protected from evil and opposition merely for our own comfort and our own ease. Even though he does promise joy and peace to us as disciples. Rather, his request is that the disciples be sanctified, that they be set apart and fitted or prepared for the work that he has planned for them to do. The tool that the Father uses to set apart and fit them for their work is his truth found in his word. This is the same truth that had constantly guided Jesus in his ministry on earth, and his disciples need it even more. The task that Jesus has for the disciples is to be sent into the world. See how that could be confusing? We're, we're in the world, and yet Jesus says he's going to send us into the world. But that's because we are not of the world. Here's the progression. Those who were originally given to Jesus out of the world, yet remain in the world, are now sent into the world, just as Jesus was sent by his Father into the world. Think about the Great Commission. He said, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus sent them into the world and he sends us into the world. We're still here. We're still facing the hostility. But Jesus has a mission for us. So he took some out of the world, the original disciples and us today, he took us out of the world so that we would be his. He says, okay, now I still have a mission and that is to reach the rest of the world, but I'm going to do it through y'all. We are the spiritual resistance overcoming God's enemies. Now, I know that none of us are old enough to really remember World War II, 
But you've all learned about World War II, and one of the things you remember is that in every nation that was overrun by Nazi Germany, resistance pockets existed. These were people who chose, rather than to flee to a country where they would be safe, they chose to remain in place to fight the enemy, to fight the opposition. And in a spiritual sense, that's exactly what we are. God has taken us out of the world in a sense that we are now his and our thinking has been transformed, but we're still in the world, but we're like pockets of resistance. The good news is, is that our resistance against the enemy will be successful because Jesus has promised that it will be so. Our resistance to satanic forces is described in the New Testament as warfare. It's like we are to take no prisoners when it comes to resistance against Satan himself. We should fight temptation. We should fight the desire to sin and the desire to just be comfortable in this world. We should fight that seriously. But the hostility of people in the world is not to be overcome with warfare, but by doing good. You may remember that Christian taught about this a few weeks ago. He said, we're not the ones who are supposed to overcome evil with evil, but to overcome evil by doing good. The disciples' task, like that of Jesus, was to bear witness to the truth and promote the eventual salvation of the world. The certainty that their mission will succeed is based entirely upon the consecration of Jesus himself, which we read about in verse 19. He alone is fit to become our righteous sacrifice and to intercede for us as our great high priest. What would have happened to the Christian church if the original disciples had not been protected by God from the hostile world and from the schemes of Satan? If it even survived the first century, it would have become just another schismatic, religious flash in the pan that would have been at best a footnote in ancient history. Or what would have happened if the first disciples had not obeyed God's call to be sent into the world for the salvation of the world? The Christian church would never have become the light of the world. And darkness would have continually deepened, perhaps to the point where the world would self-destruct. But Christian history is not defined by the failure of Christians but by the unstoppable accomplishment of God's plan and the triumphant prayers of Jesus for his church. To make it personal, what will happen if we, as 21st century disciples, fail in our calling? God's plan to save the world will not be thwarted. I hope that's clear. He's prayed for us. But if we don't fulfill our calling to be sent into the world, we will be sidelined. 
God can raise up others to do the job that we fail to do. Therefore, we should take great comfort in the prayer of our Savior for us as disciples. And here are a few practical steps to take based upon what he did in his prayer. First, we need to be prepared by his teaching and example. Second, we need to pray for what he prays for through the preservation of his truth that we would be protected and from the evil one who rules this world that we be fitted by his truth and sent into the world for its ultimate salvation. If I were to sum the whole thing up, here's the expression I would use. We are a people protected in the world for the sake of the world. Does that make sense? We should expect great things of God for his plan cannot fail and Jesus is not only able to keep us but to send us as his prayers are always according to the will of his Father. And he prays for us. Hallelujah. Amen?